0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship get our minds off of the events of the last week and the worries and anticipations of what's coming during the next week and get ready just to put our attention on God's Word and what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this morning. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity in this country to gather together freely to study your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have that have been purchased for us by those who have served in the military throughout the years of this nation's existence and those who have uh, paid the ultimate price to secure and to preserve our freedoms. Father, we continue to pray for those who today serve in the military, especially those from this congregation, that they might Now have their focus on you, that that they might uh, be able to relax in their service, and if they need to go into combat, that they would rest in knowing that they are in your plan and that you are in control of the circumstances. Father, we pray for the leaders in this nation, for our president, for uh, leaders in Congress, military leaders, that as we face so many international crises that you would give them wisdom and skill to uh, make the right decisions and to get the correct information that they may be able to make good decisions. We pray for our enemies, that you would confound them and confuse their plans and uh, that you would bring to light the information that we need to make the kinds of decisions necessary. Fathers, believers, we know that as goes the believer, so goes the nation and that the most important thing that, any, that can take place in any nation has to do with the positive volition of individual believers as they pursue spiritual growth. So nothing is more important than our own personal study and application of your word and our own pursuit of spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us today with the things that we study that we may continue to, to grow and mature. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I believe we're down to verse 8 now. And we get into the heart of one of these passages in the scriptures that is always a little fun to get into at times and has a lot to teach and that has to do with the whole arena of what is sometimes called doubtful things this is arena arena has really to do with decision making how to make the kinds of decisions that we should make about participating in different things in life every all kinds of activities in life that are not specifically addressed by the scripture remember the bible was written between approximately 1446 B.C. and 95 A.D., which is a period of 1,500 years. And there are many things that are part of modern society and modern culture that were not around during the time of the Bible. There are many activities. There are many uh, things such as television, radio, music, dancing, playing cards, all kinds of things that weren't around during the time of the Bible, and it seems like a lot of Christians want to pontificate as to just exactly what kinds of movies or what movies or movies at all, uh, or television shows or entertainment or games or uh, all kinds of things that Christians should or should not participate in. And uh, these all fall into the category of doubtful things because there are, as I stated earlier, many of these things in our culture that were not around during the time of the writing of the Bible and not addressed during the time uh, of Scripture. However, there, are, there is one particular problem that was present in the ancient world that does have application to these things and gives us the principles that we need for decision-making in these areas of, of doubtful things, and that had to do with eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now in the ancient world you have to rec- recognize that that they didn't always have uh just any place to go for to pick up groceries and to pick up meat you couldn't go down to the neighborhood uh butcher and if you did the neighborhood butcher was usually located on the temple precincts and just as it is the uh habit of most believers to sanctify the food before you before you eat and just as even in many uh uh... superficial superficially christian homes they still at least perhaps at thanksgiving or christmas uh... say grace whether they understand any of the dynamics behind it or not It's just simply a perfunctory ritual the same thing was true in the ancient world that food uh... was taken and presented or consecrated to the idols and uh... the best parts of the animal or certain parts of the animal were then burnt and offered on the on the uh, altars, and then the rest was taken and was butchered and then offered for sale. There was also a um, a place where you could uh, dine on site at the um, local temple, and frequently, at least in in, in Corinth, all of this was sometimes seen as simply a preamble to going in and uh, having a real party at the temple and and enjoying all the benefits of the temple prostitutes, whether male or female. So in the minds of many people in the culture, uh, the meat, eating at the restaurant, and then all of the mystical ritual activities, including the ritual prostitution, were all considered to be part and parcel of the same package. In the minds of many people, they couldn't separate the meat They couldn't separate even eating in the restaurant on the temple precincts from what else went on on the temple precincts. And so there were, on the one hand, those who felt that if you ate meat that had been sacrificed to idols, that somehow you were validating the entire uh, idolatrous system and participating in it. And then there were those who, having been saved out of this background, had uh because of their sin nature and the lust of the flesh and their particular weaknesses in the sin nature, they would uh, uh have a tendency to see someone who went down to the temple and ate at the restaurant uh, and and perhaps this this uh, more mature believer who ate at the restaurant and then went went on home uh never engaged in any of the ritual prostitution or drunkenness or any of the other things that went on uh this other weaker believer who hadn't been taught who had a uh predilection and enjoyment of the uh fleshly lust and on the temple precincts just couldn't look at it from just the standpoint of going down and enjoying a good steak If he went down and had a good steak, he was so tempted by what was going on in the next room that uh, he just couldn't eat his steak and go home. He would have to go on and participate in everything else. So you had some problems there, and the problem that was uh, being addressed was how the believers should address those who had this area of weakness, as well as a problem that isn't so evident in the text of 1 Corinthians 8 itself, and that is what do you do with the what do you do with the believer that uh, thinks that if participation in any part somehow validates the whole now in our society, I think we have problems on both ends we don't We don't address the one so much. Everybody's so concerned about the 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 weaker brother that we never talk about the fact that that um, it's usually not the weaker brother that raises an issue here. Usually, uh, in, in my experience, the person who draws some level of complaint about going to movies, or they just can't believe that. Oh my, you went to see Harry Potter? You went to, you went to see Star Wars, or, or, or maybe something uh, R-rated, and they just they just can't believe that, and that that you can be a Christian and do something like that, or or have a drink of of uh, alcohol. I remember uh, the story about. Uh, I think it was Bob Jones III or Bob Jones IV, when they all have numbers after their name, you lose track of who's who after a while. But it was uh, whoever was the head of Bob Jones uh, College down in South Carolina back in the, I think this had to have been back in the 50s when uh, C.S. Lewis was still alive. And, uh, of course, if you don't know anything about Bob Jones, maybe I ought to inform you, Bob Jones is one of those extremely legalistic uh Bible schools christian schools let 's say, and i 've known a few people who were graduates of Bob Jones who later went on to uh, places like Dallas Seminary and they never seemed to be tainted by the legalism at Bob Jones, but at Bob Jones, you had all kinds of rules, and many Bible colleges are this way, um, not so much so anymore i don 't think, but back in uh, those days, Bob Jones was always at the outer edge. You know, if you went out on a date, you had to be chaperoned. You could only get within, you couldn't get within six inches of each other. You, uh, you couldn't uh, hold hands. You could only uh participate in certain activities or group activities. You couldn't go to movies. You couldn't watch television. Um, girls, of course, couldn't wear makeup. Skirts had to be a certain length. Uh, The boys couldn't have facial hair, no mustaches, sideburns, hair couldn't touch the collar, couldn't touch the hair, all kinds of absurd things. In fact, the most absurd legalistic rule I ever heard, uh, and this was late, I think, in my opinion, because I think a lot of things changed after the 60s or or modified a little bit, even in legalistic schools. But this was in the late 80s. I was living back in Dallas at the time, and I was... uh, uh, at some function where I was visiting with s- several men who had just uh, started their first year at seminary. And they were, were they introducing themselves, and we were getting to know one another. And one guy had uh, had just moved to Dallas. He had been uh, a youth pastor at an independent Baptist church somewhere down in Mississippi. And uh, you know, usually you don't run into a lot of heavy legalism down in the south. Uh, usually you run into, at least in my experience, it's been more typical of of northern schools, and that's because of a lot of church uh, historical factors that happened in the north that didn't take place in the south. But um, uh, at this particular independent Baptist church, uh, women had to wear long hair. Uh, Women were not allowed to wear slacks or pantsuits. Now, this is the late 80s. This is like 86 or 87. Uh, Ladies weren't allowed to wear uh, pantsuits to church or or, or slacks. Um, They had to always wear dresses. Uh, The girls always had to wear dresses. And this guy was a youth pastor, and I think the the final straw was when he took the the high school group to uh, Colorado on a ski trip. And the the girls had to wear dresses over their bib overalls. (laughs) Now, that's just taking legalism just a bridge too far. But there is this, what, what motivates so much of this, and it's a good motivation, is a desire for, for, you know, holy living, for being biblically correct. But what happens is there's a tendency to go um, too far into the arena of legislating where the Bible doesn't legislate and getting uh, getting in the face of people's individual freedom and individual responsibility. So you have the, the legalist on the one hand, and it always seems to be the legalist that people are concerned about. I've never heard a young baby believer complain about the fact that he sees a Christian doing going to movies or going, to, uh, going dancing or uh, having a good uh, scotch or drinking a beer or smoking a cigar. It's always some believer that's been around a long time that seems to be the one who gets his nose out of joint. Well, the believer who's been around a long time, if they've been exposed to any kind of teaching, ought to know better. So you've got really three groups of people that you have to address and how you relate to them. You've got the the self-righteous pharisaical type who is trying to dictate to everybody just exactly what it means to live a holy life. Then you've got the mature believer who understands grace and is grace-oriented and understands his his uh, liberty in the scriptures and his liberty in grace. And then you have the weaker believer, and the weaker believer is clearly defined in the scriptures, and so we have to understand what a weaker believer is and is not, because there's a lot of confusion there. So we'll get into that this morning, and before we get started, we have to review, or go over four laws that are going to be at the core of decision-making in any area of doubtful things. Four laws that are at the core of any kind of decision-making in the area of doubtful things. The first is the law of liberty, the law of liberty, and this law is really directed towards one's own self. This has to do with one's own position in Christ. Galatians uh, chapter five verse one tells us that for freedom Christ is set as free. So we have liberty in Christ. So let's understand the 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 uh law. It is a spiritual ordinance directed towards the self, towards the individual that expresses or that emphasizes the believer's freedom to glorify the Lord. And this law confers on every believer the right to enter into or participate in any activity that is not stated to be sinful in the Scriptures and will not cause personal failure in the spiritual life. Let me say that again. It's a spiritual ordinance or or law. It's clearly uh, stated in Scripture. We'll see it in these verses this morning. Directed toward the individual that expresses the believer's freedom to glorify the Lord. This is tangential to the first divine institution, that we have freedom to decide how we're going to serve the Lord, and we have freedom to make certain decisions, and flexibility in making certain decisions in the Christian life. A lot of the Christian life is based on the concept of wisdom. Wisdom is extrapolated from the epinosis doctrine that is in our soul now last time we went over the importance of doctrine in the scriptures and we saw that from the Old Testament through the New Testament there is this continuous emphasis on the importance of knowledge not knowledge for knowledge sake but knowledge for application sake that we have to know the word before we can apply the word and in the process the pastor teacher communicates And it is the Holy Spirit who, under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, makes doctrine understandable. This wipes out those uh, factors in human life that create uh, differences among people, such as IQ, background, intelligence, um, education. All Bible doctrine is equally understandable to all believers. That doesn't mean you're going to, Every person's going to understand it as quickly as the next person. And it doesn't mean that every bit of it is going to be understandable to you as soon as you hear it. There is some doctrine that's classified as milk and some that's classified as meat. And sometimes it takes a while, a, a lot of study, before you get all the little pieces in place, before something fully uh, makes sense. But the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, and then we have to exercise our positive volition And we have to understand or comprehend it. Just to make something understandable is simply a potential reality. Just because it is understandable doesn't mean you automatically understand it. All Bible doctrine, if I'm filled with the Spirit, all Bible doctrine is understandable. It's potentially understandable. But I may spend hours cranking through something before the light finally goes off. And the same thing is true for you. You have to understand it first just because you can articulate it, just because you can regurgitate it, just because you have notebooks filled with doctrine doesn't mean you understand it. We've all gone through those processes where we've taken examinations and we've simply regurgitated what we heard in class and we hoped that somehow we would still pass the examination even though we didn't have a clue what we were writing in the blue book. Well, that's what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people who can talk a lot of doctrine, who've heard the terminology and they can repeat what they've heard but it really hasn't clicked yet, and uh, therefore it's not even Gnosis in their soul yet. You have to understand something before it becomes Gnosis, and at this point, it becomes what the Bible calls Gnosis, or it's simply academic knowledge. It's really, truly understood knowledge, and We always have a much larger pool of academic knowledge in any arena than we do usable knowledge. And the greater the amount of academic knowledge, the greater amount of usable knowledge. Well, once it becomes academic knowledge and we understand it, then we can believe it. You can't believe something you don't understand. Now, there are people who say, yeah, you do. There's a lot of things we believe that we don't understand. But but wait a minute. That's mysticism. Mysticism just takes what they what we'll call a leap of faith into the pure subjectivity. Now there are things that we don't fully comprehend. I don't comprehend the Trinity. No finite creature can ever fully comprehend the Trinity, but I can comprehend everything that God has revealed about the Trinity. I can understand that the first person of the Trinity is known as the Father, and he has certain attributes. The second person of the Trinity is called the Son, and he has identical attributes as the Father, that they are distinct, and yet they are also one. I can understand that the Bible teaches all of those things, and I can believe that. When it comes to the point of just exactly how he's three and one, as the years go by, I comprehend more and more about that, but I will never comprehend it fully. That's not what I'm talking about here. The point I'm talking about, belief is always directed towards understanding some proposition. That's just a basic in, in language and logic. You always believe a proposition, some sort of statement, and... So when we believe something about the Trinity, we understand certain things about it. Next year you'll understand a few more things about it. The following year you'll understand a few more things about it. What you understand, you believe. And, uh, if, if you don't understand something at all, you can't, you can't believe it because belief pres- presumes a certain level of understanding. So once you believe something that's become academic knowledge then, then God the Holy Spirit transfers that from the outer circle of knowledge, which is called the nous, or the mind in the Greek, to the inner area, which is called the heart, or the cardia. And this is the the core, where where core doctrines are stored. Now, along the way, you had to exercise positive volition to understand something. You couldn't just sit there and sort of go passive in class, thinking about something else and write down the words and and a sort of multitask and think you understand it. Uh, then you have to exercise positive volition again at the point of believing. Now the Holy Spirit stores it right here in the soul as epinosis, I mean in the, in the heart, as epinosis doctrine. That is usable doctrine. Just because you have a lot of epinosis doctrine still doesn't mean there's maturity there. It's just usable doctrine, just like somebody who stored up a lot of energy or somebody who stored up a lot of calories. You've got a lot of energy there that's potential, and now you have to use it. You can't just be a spiritual couch potato and sit there and punch a tape recorder or sit in a pew in class or whatever. You have to exercise positive volition again, and that's application. Now, this is where you draw a distinction between epinosis as usable doctrine and what the Old Testament calls chokmah. C-H-O-K-M-A-H. Chokmah. Wisdom. Wisdom is the skilled application of that Epinosis knowledge, let me give you a little little illustration. Some of you can relate to this I, I know i can i I took piano lessons for for nine or ten years and and I did pretty good playing piano, but i could never I could never do what Grace was doing. I tried to play piano as a company in prep school of baraki years ago and and I could never do that you know i i could I could master the mechanics and I could sit down with any piece of music, and I could practice, and I could learn it, and I could do fairly well, but I never got to that point where I could, you know, really play and uh, pl- play in accompaniment or improvise or do anything like that. That was a whole different skill level. I could just kind of go, go through the motions and learn the basic mechanics, but that's about as far as it could go, uh, and you, you see the same thing with people in different uh, different walks of life, maybe they 're a car mechanic, and they can read a book on auto mechanics and they can understand some basic things about about a tune up, but that doesn 't mean they 're a real mechanic you know you 've got a problem with a car you don 't want to take them to somebody who can just simply read a book and learn a few things about replacing spark plugs and wires and and a battery and a few things like that. You want somebody who can really get in there, listen to it, just has a real feel. For what's going on with that engine, he has real skill with it. Uh, the same thing's true with, with, let's say, a, a, an accountant. You can have some accountants that are good, just good with numbers. Then you have other people who just, it's like they think differently. They just think in terms of numbers and they know all the, all the, uh, IRS code and they can, they're just like magicians almost. That, that's the difference. You go from somebody who has, uh, epinosis knowledge ...to real skillful application. The Old Testament gives us the illustration of Bezalel and Aholiab. Bezalel and Aholiab were jewelers and craftsmen already. They had mastered their their skills, and they were probably skillful at it at that point in their life. They were like like going down to the uh, diamond district in in New York, and you can see some of the Jewish uh, craftsmen down there working with the stones, who just have a a real feel for for diamonds and for jewelry and for uh, different types of settings. But what happened in in Exodus was that God said that He was going to put the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit to Bezalel and the Holyab so that they could produce, be, be skillful in the design and construction of all of the artifacts and all of the furniture that was going to go into the ark of the covenant so that its its workmanship the intricacy of of the detail the the gold work the the filigree the the work that was done on the breastplate of the of the of the high priest with all of the jewels and everything that it would it would be Just, just a, a work of art that would be unsurpassed by anything else that anybody saw in any other culture. That was called hochma. It was a skill. They had, they had a certain mechanical ability already and they were probably pretty talented already. But what God the Holy Spirit did was gave them an ability to take that that usable knowledge that they had and just go to a whole different level in terms of being able to apply that to the circumstances at hand. And that is the idea of Hochma or wisdom that goes throughout the book of Proverbs. And what, is, what Proverbs is designed to teach us is to give us a certain parameters so that in areas of life, where the Word of God does not directly tell us what to do, we can take the doctrine that we already know and put it together and come up with conclusions that are still positive for our spiritual life where we can honor and glorify God within that new area where there has not been direct communication from God. That's wisdom, and that's what... what it really underlies Paul's whole discussion here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is there has to be an understanding of wisdom, and it's all based on these four laws, which ultimately are going to be based on grace orientation. And the first law is the law of liberty that every believer has the freedom and the right to enter into any activity that is not stated to be sinful. And will not cause spiritual failure in Christian life. Every believer has liberty. There's an emphasis on this in 1 Corinthians uh, that it, we don't find in Romans 12, where there is a similar dis- or, excuse me Romans 14, where there's a similar discussion of uh, of doubtful things. I want you to notice that Paul emphasizes this in this chapter, in chapter 8, verse 9. He says. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block. See, he emphasizes the fact that you do have freedom. This is a genuine liberty in the life of the believer. In 1 Corinthians 9, 4 through 6, he says, Do we not have a right to eat and drink. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as do others? He emphasizes the fact that this is a right that every believer has. It's not only a liberty, it is a right. Furthermore, it is lawful. In First Corinthians ten, verse twenty-three, he says, All things are lawful to me. So it is lawful. It is not but does not violate the any any of the mandates of God. And then in verse 29 of chapter 10, he states again, uh, for my, uh, it's, it's a liberty. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? So he clearly states the principle that every believer has liberty, every believer has freedom, every believer has certain rights, and it's lawful. But that doesn't mean that just because it is our liberty, it's our right, it's lawful that, that, um, that that means that believers should always do certain things in every situation. So the question is that in many many areas of life, an issue, the issue, the question, the participation or non-participation in activity, is not related to morality. The issue is not related to spirituality per se. Um, it's not a behavior, a practice, or a custom that is prohibited. In Scripture, but it has to do with something that is simply a cultural norm, and it may be a religious cultural norm, it may be a cultural norm, and people in certain cultures dress certain ways. You go to um, i mean one uh, one clear example of this is it 's amazing how we look at certain people and immediately classify people. By the way they dress, and you'd be amazed at how this has influenced us in, in in many ways. And I have one example that always comes to mind when I think of this. And about what was it, three years or so ago, when when uh, I went over to Kazakhstan. Now, normally that was the only time I have been over to the former Soviet Union in a, a warm during a warm time. I've always gone uh, over there and. In the dead of winter. I don't know why. I just like to go over there when it's, uh, cold and snow's on the ground. But actually, the, the weather in Kiev is just a slightly bit colder than it is, than it is here. But, um when I was over there, first time during the summer, and George Meisinger was, was with me, and we were, we were walking around, and, and he had just gotten in town and uh, about a day after I did Oh, no, I think we got in the same day. And he, he and I both, after, after our classes went out, and we had to do some shopping and grocery shopping, and and he, he looked at me, and he said, Robbie, is, is it just me, or do all the women here look like hookers? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, George, they, they all look like hookers. And the the reason is, and it's a sad reason, is that when the wall came down and, and Western culture went into, went into the, to, uh, the former Soviet, the worst went in first. And all the pornography and sleaze and scuzz went in, and we started piping in all the satellite channels. And, and what we saw when we were over there is that uh, day in, day out, all day long, there's, a, there's like a fashion channel. And they get piped in on the satellite dish. The, the runway shows. And all these runway models are wearing this, this scanty stuff and see-through stuff and, and sheer blouses and everything. And we look at that same stuff and we go, well that's just, you know, that's just fashion stuff. Nobody dresses like that on a day-to-day basis. But see, they don't know any better over there. They look at that and they think that's how how American women dress on a day-to-day basis. That's how Western women dress on a day-to-day basis. So that's how they all dress. And you go to the you go to the grocery store, and and the checkout girl is about 19 years old is wearing this see-through blouse and a micro mini skirt, and and it's just like. She just stepped off some street corner in South Central Los Angeles, looking for a pickup. I mean, it's it's the most absurd thing. But we look at how they dress, and we immediately classify somebody on on these kinds of things. So norms and standards vary from culture to culture. You have various uh, different ways that different cultures look at um, at dress, and and um, you know, it's just kind of an interesting. Really interesting scenario because what's really bizarre is because it's such a sheltered environment over there or has been and they haven't had a lot of Western influence, it's really different here. Now, you young ladies here, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Now, some of you older folks will will remember this, but we live in such a jaded society today because most of our children grow up and they they hear words and they hear talk about sex at ages where most of us who are, 50 or over or 70 or over, didn't know anything about that until we were, you know, in high school or college maybe, or maybe even older than that. And uh, we're our, our children are exposed to uh, things today and knowledge about things today that most of us never knew about until we were adults. There is an innocency that has been completely lost in our culture because of the influence of so many different things, from drugs to sex to Hollywood and, and everything, but that hasn't. Especially when the wall first went down, that wasn't true in the in the old Soviet Union. And there was a level of naivete and innocence in a 17, 18, 19-year-old girl that you met and talked to. College-age girls over there, were in, in many ways, were, were like. Eleven, twelve-year-old girls here—they just hadn't been exposed. They did not have that, that cynicism. They weren't worldly-wise. They, they would—you would sit in the home—and they just had a tremendous love and for their parents. And there wasn't—you you didn't have that anti-authority thing, teenage rebelliousness that you have in the U.S. That wasn't evident at all. And so that you get this weird dichotomy with this girl that's dressed like a street hooker, and yet she's about as innocent as the you know new fallen snow so it was just you just hit this this very unusual type of environment but every culture has certain certain taboos and certain things that they practice that may or may not uh... be consistent with a a biblical set of norms and standards and uh... That has to be brought into question. So how do you address areas that are not addressed in Scripture? Well, the first law is the law of liberty. Second law is the law of love. The law of love is directed toward other believers. Directed towards other believers. This is a spiritual law based on consideration for immature believers. 1 Corinthians 8.13, this is our passage this morning where Paul states, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's a spiritual law based on consideration for uh, immature believers, how our behavior might impact or affect an immature believer. This rule places love for the weaker Christian ahead of the law of liberty. This is going to emphasize the fact that That even though I have a right to do this, it might have a negative impact on someone in my presence. Therefore, I'm going to choose not to do what I have a right to do um, in order to help someone else. Uh, As an application of impersonal love, the believer refrains from participating in a legitimate activity uh, not because it's wrong, but in order to spare susceptible believers from temptation in their area of weakness. Now, the problem that that I've always had with the law of love is that if you take that and push that to its logical extension, then you end up saying, well, maybe there's just not much I can do because there's always a possibility that somebody out there is going to take just about anything that I do out of context and use it to justify some sort of sin. So we have to address that because Paul certainly not, as we watch Paul and we observe his life, that certainly isn't what Paul is saying. So just because there's somebody out there who may t- take something that you do out of context and use it to justify sin, it isn't, isn't the issue necessarily. So we have the balance between the law of liberty, what we have a right to, and the law of love, which is recognizing its negative impact on some other believer. Then there's the law of expediency. The law of expediency, and the law of expediency is uh, directed toward unbelievers. Directed toward unbelievers. In the law of expediency, this is a, law, a spiritual ordinance that's based on consideration for the unbelievers. See, the law of love is applying what Jesus, Jesus' new commandment, John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. In the law of expediency, the focus is the unbeliever. That a believer is going to refrain from certain activities, not because they are sinful but because they may mislead or offend an unbeliever and prevent him from recognizing the true issue of the gospel. See, an unbeliever may, be, may have grown up in some sort of religious background where, let's say, uh, you're, you're a missionary in India and uh, eating uh, beef is going to be offensive to Hindus, and so you don't eat beef simply so you don't create an issue in witnessing to Hindus. You have a right to eat beef there's nothing wrong with eating beef, but you know that if you do uh, then that's going to create a problem. Now, what we're going to see is that mean that does not mean that when you're back home on furlough, that you don't have a good steak. It just means that when you're in that environment. You're not going to do something that is going to generate a a problem and make an issue out of something that's a non-issue. And then the fourth law is the law of personal sacrifice. The law of personal sacrifice. And the law of personal sacrifice, this is a spiritual principle directed toward God that involves uh, the abandonment of a completely legitimate function in life in order to uh, more intensely serve the Lord in a specialized capacity. This is the idea that for the time being I'm going to give up something that I may have a legitimate right to in order to serve the Lord in a more specialized capacity. This may involve someone who is is, is, uh, has a gift of celibacy and could get married, but chooses not to get married in order to serve the Lord in a more specialized capacity. Uh, the motive underlying this sacrifice is always evangelism and spiritual growth of the individual believer. And I think one statement that that, um, that characterizes this is is a statement of recognition that there are times and there are circumstances in life when you might, have to say, others may do this, I could do this, but right now I won't do this. Others may do this, uh, uh, I could do this, but right now I choose not to do this. And this was, a, I think this was a tough decision for uh, a lot of grace-oriented guys who went to Dallas Seminary because uh, back when I was a student in Dallas, they had a rule that... Um, for students that students were not to, uh, I think it it was an oddly worded rule, it was that we believe the Christian leaders should not participate in uh, uh, in the use of tobacco products or alcoholic beverages, and we expect our students to uh, comply with this or to to ex- exemplify this. It was just kind of an odd thing. But, you know, it was a recognition that if you were going to be a student at Dallas Seminary, uh, just as is true for, for students who go to any Christian school, if they have certain rules like that, you have to be willing to set aside your legitimate right to certain things during the time that you are a student at that institution. Now, one reason I say that is because... Um, uh, I try to encourage parents to send their children to good Christian colleges or universities, not because I think that uh, that they're always right, but I think that if the option is, and, you know, I, I've heard this for years, parents saying, well, I don't want to send my kid to such and such a school because, you know, they're legalistic. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. that school, they're going to learn 90% of what's taught at that school in terms of the Bible is solid doctrine. Number two, because as a Coming from a Christian viewpoint, a Christian framework, we believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And we believe that from the vantage point of absolute truth, we have real objectivity. Therefore, on a campus... Where the academic environment operates from the framework of a belief in absolutes and objective truth, only on that basis are you going to have true freedom of investigation in every arena of intellectual activity. I have, I, there are probably some schools that exist that, that uh, Christian schools that impose certain things—I'm sure there's there's that—but from the, my experience, that is not true in most of the better evangelical schools. Uh, I've heard good reports from people who have gone to uh, uh, Falwell's uh, Liberty University, and uh, of course Dan's here this morning. Dan went to Cedarville College in, uh, or Cedarville University now. In, um, in Ohio, and a couple of weeks ago when Curtis was here, he brought a young man with him who was, I think, in his second year there and did tried to do a little recruiting here for, for Cedarville. But I've heard folks say, well, you know, I don't want my kid going there because they might get a little legalism. Oh, okay, so you, rather than getting a little legalism where they're still going to be taught sound doctrine and they're going to be able to, they're going to be taught ethics in a, in a solid biblical environment, in a Christian school, and, and they're going to get a good education, top education in some of these schools, you would rather send them to a secular school where they're going to be taught everything within the framework of Marxism, socialism, uh, complete permissiveness, postmodernism, and, and atheism. So let 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 me understand this a little better. You're gonna you're gonna give up ninety something that's ninety five percent good because there's about five percent of a flaw there for something that is about ninety five percent garbage because cause you just don't want to put up with a little legalism. I just don't understand the difference, and uh, I don't believe that every that it's necessary for every. Uh, Young person to go to a Christian school, but I think that at least the first couple of years, it is very beneficial for a lot of kids to go to a Christian school because they become very well grounded in a lot of academic issues related to Christianity, especially to areas where Christianity is attacked in the secular classroom and prepares them a little more intellectually, at least in terms of their own intellectual defenses, to be able to handle the continuous assaults against a Christian worldlike view that are present in the standard uh uh standard secular university and um but then on the other hand there are many many areas of life where you have to finish your undergraduate work and do graduate work in a good secular school so that you have that quality of an education but as a parent i think you should pay close attention to to the possibility of sending sending your kids off to a good uh cr- christian uh, liberal arts school for a year or two just for some of that foundation okay we have our, our four laws here, and uh, we have to put them. We're going to put them in application in the t- situation itself. Now, the the situation is first described here in verse eight. Or right, let's go back to verse seven. Paul has just been talking about the fact that they have a problem with with knowledge. And uh, the issue is eating things that have offered, been offered to uh, idols. Back in verse 4, "...therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols," We know that an idol is nothing in the world. And I did a study of idolatry showing that an idol really isn't a god, even though idolatry has its source in demonism and in the false, doctrines, uh, false doctrine of demons. And frequently there are demons associated with certain idolatries and certain idols and certain religious systems. But Paul says even though uh, we know that an idol is nothing... And that there 's only one God that these idols are not God in context, nothing means that they're they 're not really a God. He goes on to say in verse five, but even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us there's one God. however, verse seven that 's his train of thought, there is not in everyone that knowledge, in other words, not every new believer recognizes. That there isn't a God behind that. They don't understand. There's no real power associated with that. Now today, that's that's true. I mean, you get into a lot of um, churches that are into what I call the neo spiritual warfare stuff. That's usually in, in charismatic churches, but it's bled over into a lot of non charismatic churches. You get the idea that there's some kind of inherent power in certain occult things, and this is typical. You pick up. About 9 out of 10 books that have been written on demonism in the last 25 years, and you will find examples in there, the most egregious of which is a book called Pigs in the Parlor. I don't know where that name ever came from, but that, that somehow you can buy an object, you know, some people buy a little buddha statue is just an object of art to have in the house oh you picked up a demon and now everything that goes wrong is because of that demon you've got to exercise the demon out of the house now or or if you go to to some temple you go to worship it you go to some place and and you're traveling in the in the east somewhere and you go into a temple then and there's a demon there you can walk out and now you've got a demon with you I mean, this kind of stuff is taught. It's just superstitious, and it'll scare people. But there are weak believers who don't know any better. Never been taught the Scripture, and so they think that that there's actually uh, that this can actually happen. That they can pick up a demon uh, by being associated with uh, a temple or an idol. And so Paul says, not everyone has that knowledge that there really isn't a god there. For some. With consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, this is the problem. Their conscience is weak because they're still operating on a false set of norms and standards. They're a young believer. They haven't learned any doctrine yet, so the value system in their their soul, the value system in their conscience, their norms and standards, are still the norms and standards they had as an unbeliever and as that as an unbeliever it was ingrained in them that this idol was a god that it there was some uh, metaphysical power there and so when you ate the meat that had been sacrificed to it you were participating in that uh, with that god in that religious system and until they were retrained biblically and got rid of that that old conscious that they had, and replaced it with a new conscience, then if you ate meat, a meat sacrificed to idols in their presence, they couldn't distinguish yet the difference, and so it actually becomes, for them, a means of participating back in the old idolatry, and they are violating their conscience. Now, the scriptures make it clear that it is a sin to violate your conscience, even if the norms and standards in your conscience are wrong. Now, why is that? See, in your, nor- in your conscience, you have various norms and standards. These tell us what is right and what is wrong. Now, as an unbeliever, you can have an extremely screwed up and distorted conscience. We saw a movie several years ago called uh, The Peace Child, which is the story of Don Richardson taking the gospel into Pop- some Stone Age tribes in Papua New Guinea, and he went to the Sawi Indians. And the Sawi Indians had as the highest standard in in their system the standard of deception. And if you wanted to be uh, thought well of in a tribe, then you pulled off some sort of con job on somebody who trusted you, and you deceived them, and if it cost that other person their life, then that was the best you could do, and that was considered uh, the highest value in their system. Now, that would be very difficult to operate in a culture where lying was elevated to an art form. How do you know who to trust? Well, the only way they knew who to trust was that eventually things would break down and they would have to uh, stop their warfare. And so you'd have one tribal group meet with another tribal group, and the uh, chief of one would have a newborn baby that he would give to the other chief that would be a sign that now I'm telling you the truth. And it was that baby that was called the peace child. And when Don Richardson understood that uh, analogy, he used that to relate that concept to Jesus Christ as God's peace child to us. Um, You know, you can just think about it. He had such a hard time when he first finally got to a point where he knew the language and explained the gospel. They all thought Judas was the hero. Jesus was just a patsy. You know, Judas did exactly what they thought ought to be done. So Richardson had a real problem, but see that was their conscience. Their conscience said what's right is deception. what's wrong is honesty. But see, Romans two says that the very fact that there exists right a concept of right and wrong, even though the value itself is distorted, the fact that a right and a wrong exist is is an indication that they know. That there is an absolute law of God and that they've rejected. The fact that the human conscience contains within it absolutes is an indication that they know that God exists and therefore they're accountable morally. Well what God says is once you set the what the scriptures say is even though you're right and you're wrong maybe off, don't violate your conscience. If you do, it's a sin. Why? Because it sets a precedent, once you start that process of rationalization and going against your conscience, even if your conscience is wrong, you start breaking down the resistance to your conscience. So the next time it becomes easier and easier to numb your conscience and to go against your conscience. And then when you get to the point where you've gotten things straightened out and you've got divine viewpoint up here, divine viewpoint telling you what's right and wrong, you've developed a habit pattern of numbing your conscience, violating your conscience, desensitizing your conscience, and rationalizing away the violation of your conscience. And now it's going to become more and more difficult for you to stick to absolute standards of right and wrong. This is one of the... um, uh, dangerous consequences and something that's very seldom about, talked about about uh, a society built on relativism. When you get a society that, like ours is, that's so ingrained with relativism, then we have, we've, we've basically anesthetized ourselves to a conscience. So that it's very difficult for many young people. Uh, once they become Christians, when they're 20, 25 years of age, they have grown up, uh, basically squelching a conscience. And now when, when they do get norms and standards and their conscience is saying, woohoo, you know, the Bible says, uh, don't do this or do this, uh, they've spent 15, 20 years of their life, uh, completely squelching that conscience. Now they just, they, they don't even, he- they don't hear it. So, it sets a precedent. That's why the scriptures make it clear that, uh, violating the, violating a conscience is a sin, even when the value system in the conscience is not biblically correct. Don't, um, make, establish that precedent. And that's the foundation here. Paul says, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some who are accustomed to idolatry up to this point eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. Their conscience being weak is defiled. Now in our culture we have all kinds of taboos that have come across these are that's what I'm talking about is taboos or cultural norms that have been picked up and in Christianity there's all kinds of of odd uh, odd uh, prohibitions. I've got a list I've worked on for years and I'm thought I would read some of these to you. Some of these are pretty antiquated now. At least I hope they are. I haven't run into Christians who practice some of these in a couple of decades, but I'm sure there's a few um, Neanderthals out there, antediluvians who are still practicing this. Attending movies. You know, there's always a few Christians here who just think it's wrong to attend movies, or some will say it's wrong to attend certain kinds of movies. Uh, watching television. Working for pay. On Sunday. Now, I always like that. I remember going out to eat with. I had this wonderful old retired missionary in my first church, and I remember getting a. And she was a little bit legalistic, and and uh, she had been spent her life as a missionary in Colombia. And I remember sitting in a Wyatts cafeteria with her, and we got. I'd mentioned something about uh, the Sabbath wasn't applicable anymore in uh, the New Testament, and so we're out, at, and she went out to Wyatt's cafeteria every, I don't know, they don't have cafeterias up here, so you all may not know what I'm talking about, but um, we went out to, to eat at this cafeteria down, down in Houston, that was thing you did down in a small town in Texas, and uh, we got in this discussion, and I just asked her, I said, I, I, Irene, I said, if you're not supposed to work on, on, on Saturday, why do you go to a cafeteria every Saturday and make all these other people work? You're making them sin. Well, that really flustered her. And then I, I remember one guy, uh, Dan, you know you know this guy, uh oh, what was his name? He uh uh, uh Gleason Archer, well known Old Testament scholar. Um Gleason Archer thought that the Sabbath still applied for today and, and when you ask him, I was in a conversation with him one time and somebody said, Well, how do you apply the sabbatical on today? He says, Well, I don't watch football on Sunday afternoon. Well, I'm not sure how that applies, but I don't remember remember that exclusion in the Mosaic Law. But then you have others who don't who prohibit fishing on Sunday. Uh, of course, there's always the alcoholic issue. Some will, will uh, uh, won't even allow for drinking wine in moderation, and others won't even allow for cooking uh, with wine. Um, Others prohibit attending the theater to see a live drama or even participating in sports. Sometimes it's just a prohibition against contact sports. Sometimes you have prohibitions of eating food in the church building. Uh, Music is always a good one. You have prohibitions on rock music and and, uh, probably other kinds of music as well. Uh, prohibitions against uh, for against kissing for unmarried couples. There's always some groups that have problems with men who have hair over their ears or hanging on their collars, uh, taking any kind of tranquilizers or going to a psychiatrist, wearing, um, I mean, I have problems with that too, but it's not legalism, uh, wearing two-piece swimsuits or bikinis, uh, mixed, they used to call it mixed bathing. I always wondered what that was, but it's mixed swimming. Where um, you have both sexes in the pool at the same time. Uh, I used to always love it when I grew up going to a Christian camp down in Texas. Most, nearly everybody, nearly everybody who was there was from, from uh, uh, out of Baraka Church in Houston. And, and every summer we always got three or four counselors who would come down from a school up in Michigan that was a bit legalistic. They wouldn't let them do any of this stuff and uh, they would always go back changed people by the end of the summer after spending a summer with a bunch of grace-oriented folks from from, uh, Houston. Uh, Buying life insurance is is, uh, considered sinful by some groups. Smoking, wearing pants or pantsuits to church for the ladies, uh, using a Bible other than the King James Version, uh, using guitars in, in worship or wearing beards, or dancing. All of these things are prohibited by some groups. Of course, you always have the, the Amish who won't let you use any kind of um, uh, modern convenience or te- technology that's been invented since about 1820. So somebody always thinks that doing something that's not mentioned in the Bible is somehow, somehow sinful. Well, we'll come back next time and we'll look at what the principles are for how to handle this and make decisions in these areas in our own lives. Uh, Father, we do thank you for this time we've had to study your word. Help us to understand these things and and see how to apply them in our own lives that we might uh, might not just be uh, asserting our own rights, our own liberty, but also uh, we might be... uh, Aware of, of the weaker brother and just exactly what it means to apply this in the arena of the, of the weaker brother. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to be both sure and certain. Take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is not our works. The issue is not our morality or or ritual, or church involvement, church attendance, or any other human factor. The issue is simply trust in Jesus Christ. All you have to do right where you sit right now is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. God the Father, who is omniscient, knows exactly what you are believing and what you trust for salvation. And at the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you are regenerated. You receive Eternal life, God's own life, is imputed to you, a life which you can never lose. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that we might uh, apply them consistently in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.